Just a quick heads up before we begin the podcast, Jason's Module 1 online teacher training registration has closed, but he is offering a hybrid training this summer in London at Mission Yoga, the new fabulous studio that I cannot wait to go to. I will be there also offering a live podcast and we're working out the details on that. But you can get information about that as well as Jason's new anatomy intensive Essential Guide to Yoga Anatomy. You can get information about both of those programs at jasonyoga.com slash schedule. And if you are curious about the hybrid program, but not exactly sure how it all works, we're doing a free info session where Jason will walk you through it. And that will be on May 18th at 10 a.m. Pacific. You can get all the details and save your seat for that webinar at jasonyoga.com slash webinar and you can also get all your questions answered and get to hang out with my favorite person in the whole world. Okay, on to the episode. Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti and this is Yoga Land. Today my guest is Libby Hinesley. Libby is the author of Yoga for Bendy People, Optimizing the Benefits of Yoga for Hypermobility. She's also a yoga teacher, a physical therapist, and a person living with hypermobile EDS or hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. She is the absolute perfect person to have written this book, having gone through what she went through as a yoga practitioner, which was many years of doing a practice that she didn't know was depleting her body and and creating more pain than was necessary. So she went through that and she came out the other side discovering a practice that nourishes her and makes her feel well and one that she had to adjust and accommodate over time. Also, having her PT background means that she truly understands the body from the physical therapy perspective and she just has a real knack for taking all of the things that we maybe have heard about hypermobility here, there, and everywhere and putting them all together in a cohesive book that's easy to understand from a lay person perspective. So I truly, truly appreciate this book so much so that it is the next book for my Yogaland book club. So if you'd like to join the book club, you can go to yogaland.substack.com. Substack asks you to subscribe, and that's so that you can receive the notifications from the book club. You can subscribe for free, and you will get some of the book club offerings. If, if you become a paid member, which is $6 a month, you get all of the offerings, including a Q&A with Libby that we will do together. So if you've been curious about the difference between being flexible and hypermobile, if you have had long-term chronic nagging injuries that yoga seems to exacerbate and you're trying to figure out what to do about that, and if you just want to create a practice that increases your self-awareness, this is a great book for you. One of the things I love is that Libby does not fearmonger about being hypermobile. She makes it very clear throughout the conversation. Those who are hypermobile or on the have a hypermobility syndrome are not fragile. So teachers don't need to treat them like they have to be afraid of their body. It's really a matter of figuring out the things that you need to do proactively 
to create a practice that is supportive. And she makes those things really clear, things and and the benefits of yoga really clear for a bendy body. Things like increasing proprioception, working on strength in the mid-range, and increasing the ability to map the body. Even increasing your your self-study skills, because that's something that's really important to do is to check in with your body after you do yoga. Because when you're hypermobile, you often don't feel pain while you're doing a practice, but you feel it after. So there are just there's so many good tips in this podcast, and there's even more deeper, fantastic information in the book. I highly recommend that you go get it and enjoy this conversation with Libby. Hi, Libby. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. So your book is Yoga for Bendy People, Optimizing the Benefits of Yoga for Hypermobility. And I am just, this book is so vital and such an open gaping hole in the yoga community that we need and it fills it so well. So I'm I'm really excited to talk to you. And we were just, we've been emailing and talking about how this topic is huge and, you know, because hypermobility affects the whole, can affect the whole body, there's just so much to it. So we're going to do our best to cover what we can to be helpful for people today. And I just want to remind people that I'm also hosting a book club on this book uh, that you can join at yogaland.substack.com. And Libby will do another talk with us for those of you who who sign up for the book club. So so read the book and gather your questions and then you can talk to Libby directly if there's things that I don't cover. One of the things that you do so nicely in the book is you share your story and how challenging it was for you to get diagnosed with hypermobility. You have and I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Ehlers-Danlos? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I've read a lot about it, but I wasn't sure if I was pronouncing it correctly. So, can you tell us your story of you know, what it was like to do yoga before you had your diagnosis and then kind of what the process was of getting diagnosed. Sure. So it's often a really long process for people, unfortunately, and hopefully that'll change in the future. But when I think back on my earlier yoga years, I was involved in types of yoga that really weren't serving my bendy body. I didn't really realize it because that's just the yoga soup I was swimming in. Um, But the messaging in that was always, you know, if something hurts or if you have like an injury, then it's just sort of things are opening and things are shifting and you should just do more yoga. It was always do more. Mm -hmm. And um, I was pretty much, I had just pain head to toe all the time. And it was always exacerbated by my yoga practice. And for some reason, I never really realized that, you know, it's really hard to stop and like honestly evaluate what things are contributing to your pain when you are so committed to and kind of wrapped up in a certain narrative that yoga is always good for you. Mm -hmm. And we never really examine, well, what do we mean by yoga? Number one. And I was doing really fast paced kind of vinyasa, like hardcore that sort of power yoga stuff. And that might be fine for some people, even if they're bendy. But for me, it wasn't. I had shoulder pain, neck pain, a lot of SI joint pain, hip pain, knee pain, (laughs) all all up and down. But those were the big spots that just always hurt. Mm -hmm. And they might have always hurt whether I was doing yoga asana or not, but I, I definitely always felt more tweaky after practicing. 
you know, over the years, I became a yoga instructor and I still was practicing kind of like that. It wasn't really until I studied in the Vini Yoga lineage in 2008, when I went to India and studied at Desikachar's place, that I really got into a different way of approaching asana altogether. And it wasn't super popular or sexy, you know, but it really changed my life, not only with regard to how I understood yoga in the bigger picture, but definitely how asana impacted my body. And when I started practicing in these new ways, asana didn't make me hurt worse, it actually just felt good. Mm-hmm. And that was so different for me. It was such a stark contrast. Um, so that was definitely a big turning point in my own practice and certainly impacted my teaching from, from there on out. But as far as the diagnosis goes, and we can talk about these conditions and, you know, what it means to have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and what it means to be bendy maybe, but not qualify for that diagnosis. Cause that's a little complicated, but for people who have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos or hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is the other thing they might have most commonly they, the average time of diagnosis is 10 to 12 years. But for me, I was symptomatic for 30 years. I mean, I was diagnosed at age 43, just a few years ago. And, you know, I kind of understood for a couple of years before that, that I probably do have hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos because I, as a physical therapist, mostly treat yoga people and they mostly are bendy and they mostly had all the same stuff that I'd always have. So I just started seeing all these connections and all these patterns in my patients and clients that were very similar to my own life. And that's where I started making a lot of these connections and learning about hypermobility syndromes. So I kind of already figured that I might have this. I have small children and that was really what spurred me to seek a diagnosis officially so that if or when my children have issues later on, they won't have to jump through the same hoops that I have jumped through for decades on trying to understand a body that is just different, has some different needs, has some different superpowers. But so that's why I sought the diagnosis. And it did take a while where I live in Asheville, North Carolina. It's it's actually very difficult to get a diagnosis because many doctors don't know much about these conditions. They want to refer to a specialist. The problem is there isn't a specialist to refer to who all, who knows about these conditions. So there's a, a lot of boomerang going on. You get referred out, you come back. It's a dead end. It's a dead end. Oftentimes, a rheumatologist would be the one to see in, in my town. They will, will not see you. So it's just weird. It's going to be place-specific. Or a geneticist. Um, in our town, the geneticist won't see these referrals anymore either because they, there were too many of them. They got overwhelmed by all the referrals and they said, we can't do this anymore. It's back to primary care. So that's a weird sort of place specific dynamic going on. It makes it really hard for our local people here to see, to get care period. It's really kind of dire, but yeah. in some places it's not. For me, I got lucky that I was able to see the geneticist here before they stopped taking those referrals. So I was probably one of their last patients. And when I finally saw him after seeing a whole host of specialists, he was like, duh, of course you have hypermobile EDS. This is a classic case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just took somebody, somebody who really understands the condition and they can identify it just like that. But the interesting thing is um, hypermobile EDS is, I think you said in the book, is the one type that can't be a cannot be diagnosed by a blood test, correct? So how did that geneticist know just from a clinical 
standpoint? Yeah, that's right. So there's a whole um, diagnostic criteria for the hypermobile type. You're right. It's it's the only one out of 13 types of EDS that does not currently have an you know identified molecular markers. We can't do a blood test for it, but there's a long list, a whole page of diagnostic criteria, and you have to check off enough of those boxes to qualify for that diagnosis. So that's what he was able to do. But okay. any physician should be able to do that, actually. It's not not really that difficult to do. A geneticist is nice because he's able to hear, um, is there a need to rule out some other condition that might look similar to this, right? Like Marfan syndrome or some other type of EDS. Do we need to do any of those types of things? So that's when it's awfully really nice when a geneticist is involved. Okay. So one of the things that I hear from this description of getting a diagnosis is that it's still pretty challenging to find people who understand. And so you really have to advocate for yourself, it sounds like. So I'm sure there are resources and websites that you can offer that I could put in the show notes for people to kind of see, you know, if they want to seek a diagnosis. But what would be, I think one of the things that I noticed in the yoga community is it's great that there's becoming, you know, we're, we're getting more awareness of the hypermobility spectrum, but there's also this potential for people being afraid or even teachers being afraid that if they see a particularly flexible student, that they assume that they're hypermobile. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could, if we could back up and just kind of get some term definitions on what is the difference between being flexible and being hypermobile. Mm -hmm. Great question. I would say even like being on the hypermobility spectrum. Yes. So really good question. And you're right. There's some fear about it. And one at the outset, we should just say bendy people aren't scary and we should not be afraid of them (laughs) because there's really is that tendency among yoga teachers, but also among all kinds of practitioners, PTs, doctors who don't really understand. They become very afraid of these people. They're afraid they're going to hurt them. And then people themselves become afraid of their own bodies and they're afraid they're going to get hurt all the time. And it's this really negative narrative about fragility that is not accurate. And it is, I would say, the biggest hurdle for people feeling better. So we may come back to that later. But for now, let's talk about these terms, flexibility and mobility, and what hypermobility even means. And then when is it a problem? So I'm going to use the terms as they're most commonly used in the hypermobility literature. People don't always use these terms in the same ways. But Flexibility we're going to use to refer to what's happening, what kind of range of motion, let's say, is attributable to what's happening in the muscular system, muscle tone, muscle flexibility. So flexibility is about muscles. Let's kind of hold that. Mobility is about what's happening at the joints due to more things like bone shapes and specifically the collagenous tissue around the joint, the capsule itself and the ligaments that are surrounding it and the tendons, those thick collagenous connective tissues that's really what's going to lend this idea of mobility. Now, flexibility and mobility, they're always happening together. But this makes it really hard to just observe someone move and really understand what you're observing. Because someone might have a lot of joint mobility, um, but they might not have very much muscle flexibility. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of common, actually, because very often the body will compensate for excessive mobility at a joint by chronically contracting muscles surrounding that joint, sometimes to such a degree that the range of motion is actually limited. So mm-hmm. sometimes that hypermobility will be hidden, it's hiding in there. Not all the time, but it, it's possible. 
So what does hypermobility mean? It just, it just means that a joint moves more than is considered normal or typical for a human body to move. All of our joints have normal ranges established. When you have kind of five or more, like a global presentation of hypermobility, joints that move more than that, that's considered generalized hypermobility. Furthermore, it's not always a problem to be hypermobile. Some people, they just have a little bit more mobility than the average human, and it's not a problem. They don't have symptoms. They don't dislocate. They don't subluxate. They don't have all these other multi-system ramifications, and that they truly could be asymptomatic. So when you see someone whose mobility, you know, they demonstrate like an impressive amount of a mobility, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. And you don't need to freak out. You don't need to freak them out. But it might clue you in, huh, maybe there's something going on here. Let's see what happens in conversation. Maybe they have questions. As you get to know the student over time, you might find they have, they're struggling with digestive issues or pain or fatigue or um, mental health issues or some of the really common multi-system ramifications of symptomatic hypermobility. Mm-hmm which, you know, also, of course, could be joint pain and myofascial pain. Those would be the the two main ones that are going to show up, um, especially in yoga, shoulder pain, neck pain, SI joint pain. That's what I would expect in a symptomatically hypermobile person. But um, so just being aware of that, you know, it's just complicated. It's complicated. Sometimes students share things with their teacher about all those bigger picture items, or they have questions about their nagging shoulder or SI joint pain, especially. And then you can put together a picture. And now we might be talking about someone with symptomatic hypermobility, which is a good way of just saying they might have a hypermobility syndrome. Right. One of the things Jason talks a lot about to his trainees is kind of staying in your own lane as a yoga teacher, that you're not a doctor, you're not a PT. And you, Libby, are a PT actually, but you know, many yoga teachers are not PTs. They're not doctors. They're, they're not there to to diagnose. And so it sounds kind of similar to what you're saying. So just to take that a step further, like let's say you do have a student who comes to you and is describing many of the multi-system possibilities that they might have a hypermobility syndrome. We're going to get to what what they can do yoga-wise in throughout this conversation, but how would you advise that student to seek, you know, a help? Would you, I know there's a test, the Baton test. Would you, would you point them toward that or would you not even do that and just say, yeah, okay. Okay. Probably not because okay. the Baton scale or the Baton scale, however you want to say it is so limiting. It doesn't give us that much information. Okay. There's a lot, it's, it's the quick and dirty screen for generalized hypermobility that is what is commonly used in the research and it's the quickest thing it's what we have but it is not diagnostic for anything all it does is suggest maybe there's generalized hypermobility here and if you put that along you know together with a bunch of symptoms maybe we're looking at a hypermobility syndrome the thing to know is that plenty of people who do have symptomatic generalized hypermobility will score low on that test So there's like one element of the test is the forward fold with knees straight. Can you put your palms on the ground? Well, you know, for yoga teachers, they see that all day long. It's right. Of course, you know, but it's actually not considered normal for a human to be able to do that. So you get a point on the test for that. However, I've seen some bendy people, you know, diagnosably hypermobility syndrome people who cannot do that because their hamstrings are so contracted kind of 
as a compensation for all their mobility right. that they don't even score that well on this test. So it's really kind of interesting that way. But what you could do if you have a student who's interested in asking questions is direct them to some online information, which I can give you like the Ehlers-Danlos Society website is a great resource. You can also suggest that they seek out some consultation with their doctor or their physical therapist, especially if you know of one who understands these conditions. And that that's where you want to go with this. You know, chances are they're fine in yoga. They might have some nagging aches and pains that arise in their practice, but these people are okay. So that yeah. the biggest thing is to, to don't, don't freak out and don't instill fear in their mind about their hypermobility either. Right. One of the things you, you quoted Jules Mitchell in the book and I, I don't, I'm not, I didn't write it down, so I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it was something like yoga doesn't cause hypermobility. That's another thing that people worry about. Like if I do things too much, am I causing this syndrome to flare up in my body or something. It's like, it doesn't cause hypermobility, but a lot of us who are hypermobile, and I would definitely count myself on that spectrum, though it's very well managed at this point in my life, but for a long time, it wasn't. We self-select toward yoga because it's like often the first time in our lives that we are the star of the show. Like We can do all the things and, and we can throw our legs behind our head and people ooh and ah, and we feel great about ourselves because, because you know, we might struggle with proprioception. We might struggle with, um, I was never a great runner. I don't have a great gait. I'm not, like I, I fatigue really easily. So for me, dance and yoga were the two things that I naturally was drawn to because I was naturally pretty good at them, you know, when I started. And you exactly. have the same experience, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And it's, I hear it from countless people. Yoga is often the first place they ever felt a sense of physical mastery that they were good at a thing because a lot of times they did struggle with coordination as a kid. Maybe they really weren't involved with sports, either they weren't interested or they just weren't coordinated enough. And then they get to yoga asana and they're the star and they get a lot of positive feedback and it does feel good. It feels really good. And that adds to the difficulty of being able to really honestly assess your own experience. Because on the one hand, you might be having, like I was, all these problems, physical problems related to practice. But on the other hand, all you're getting from all those around you in the yoga space is positive reinforcement. So it's hard to reconcile those two things. Right, right, right. So I think one of the challenges that you talk about in the book that you went through and that several other people, you know, people who students who you interviewed have gone through is that possibility. So I want to kind of talk about the, the quote unquote downside, right. Of discovering that some of the asanas you're doing might not be serving you. And then there's also so much upside to continuing to do asana and, you know, with a different focus. So you went through the downside of, you know, a teacher saying to you at a certain point, you've had this nagging hamstring injury for what, eight years? Maybe let's stop doing such deep forward bends. Right. Yeah. And so are there things still that you um, just don't do? Or is it that you've changed your practice? Like you talked about certain things that I definitely do, which is like the coke concentric and the isometric contractions. Is it that you've changed your practice? The way, the way that you use your body in your poses or are there really certain poses that you've given up? 
Yeah, I would say yes, all of the above. Uh-huh. <laughs> My practice is so, so different. There are tons of postures that I don't do, haven't done for years, probably won't ever do. Mm-hmm. And it's not a thing for me anymore. Mm-hmm. It is it, like I am a different person than I was at that time when that teacher told me to stop doing all these forward folds. I just had a whole different understanding of yoga practice and what it was for. That's mm-hmm. the biggest thing. I think we have to, if we're, when we're talking about a posture that you know, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. There are some postures that just aren't right for everybody. And it's not a thing. It's no big deal. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we have so thoroughly, I think, misunderstood the role of asana and really misunderstood the, the goals of yoga. Or even if we understand them, they sort of we forget because we get swept up in yoga culture and a performance, the aesthetic, ego, right? The aesthetic, and you know what? We all have an ego, and like you said, like yeah. when you're the star and you're getting that positive feedback, mm-hmm. it does. It's just natural to kind of want to continue that. We we seek that. It is. It is. And when you've done, you know, a fifty chaturangas and a hundred downward dogs for every practice for years and years, it's hard to conceive of a way of practicing that doesn't include those things. It's right. just. As an example, I mean, I'm not saying don't ever do those two postures, but I'm just thinking about the way I used to practice in sort of the the hot dynamic vinyasa stuff. I don't do the. I might do a downward dog. Mm-hmm. I might do a chaturanga, but it's really more like I'm just lowering myself to the floor. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I just don't do a lot of those postures that I used to do many, many, many times in each practice mm-hmm. because I'm choosing postures that just feel good for my body. And the asana has a different purpose now in Mm -hmm. my life. You know, it's here to support me feeling good. There's not any other reason for it. Right. Um, You know, as far as like the physical body goes. And when we put it back in the bigger picture of yoga, we just have to ask, why are we practicing? And why are we doing this posture? And why are we attached to doing it? You know, that was the question for my past self talking to that teacher, like, why am I attached to these deep forward folds? Turns out my attachment to those had really nothing to do with anything that yoga actually cares about. Yeah. And so you have to examine those bigger questions. And I think that's useful to examine for everybody, no matter what, but certainly if there's like a kind of a propensity for injury or your, you know, your yoga practice, your asana practice is really leading you to not feel great in your body. We have to examine these bigger questions. Back to your your previous question, though, about you can't catch hypermobility and that, that really yoga just draws the bendy people because they're good at it. I wanted to say, I think it draws them for a whole bunch of reasons, not just because of that um, positive reinforcement they get, but because they're often struggling with things. And there are the things that yoga kind of claims to be helpful for and often is helpful for. So they often are going to be having joint pain, myofascial pain. They often have fatigue. They have poor sleep. They've got anxiety. They've got a lot of different things, I think, that drives them to the yoga studio. Mm -hmm. It's a bonus that they get all this positive reinforcement. But I really think part of it is they're seeking out a remedy for their condition that they may not understand yet, but mm-hmm. but it brings them to yoga. I think that is so true. I mean, I think back on my own experience and I wasn't aware of it at the time, but I was definitely drawn to yoga or like what kept me coming back was that it just 
helped my anxiety so much. I didn't even know I had anxiety at that point in my life, but I just needed something. And so you're right. It, it satisfied a, it ticked several boxes at the same time. You, you touched on something that I think is so important, which is, and it reminds me of my own kind of eating and nutrition journey. So like I was a person who could eat whatever I wanted growing up and I never gained weight. And so I didn't really, I had a decent diet. I definitely had better than the average American diet, but I didn't, I just didn't really think about it until I got pregnant. And then I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. And, and, you know, there's no better motivator for, to, to do well with your nutrition than being pregnant and wanting your baby to be okay. And so I had to do these nutritionist sessions and I had to be pretty strict at that point in my life about counting carbs um, because of the baby. And I felt so good for the rest of my pregnancy because I changed my diet. And I still struggle with, you know, like always kind of eating well according to my my blood type and my my body, but the motivation for me is always that I feel better when I do. The motivation isn't like, oh, I'm being good and I'm not hurting myself. The motivation is I feel better. And so I think you, you just said that in passing, like the nice thing for people out there who might be listening and thinking like, well, I, I really love doing these poses and it's not going to feel as satisfying. Ultimately, the hope is that if you, if you are able to alter your practice or find someone to help you do that, you will feel so much better systemically overall. So much better. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder, you know, one of the things you talk about a lot in the book is that's that when there is hypermobility, there's often ch- challenges with proprioception. There's often challenges with feeling your body and feeling where it is in space. And I wonder if, and you may have said this in the book and I just kind of missed it, but I wonder if that desire to go to the end range and like really stretch as far as you can in a hypermobile body is like a desire to feel something, to just feel something. <laughs> and you get that feedback when you feel at that end range. Exactly it. It's yeah. exactly it. It's that we often don't feel anything until we are way past where is reasonable to be because the mechanical, the mechanoreceptors in our connective tissue that is floppy, they don't even get stimulated until we're way out here to feel tension. Mm -hmm. We don't get tension through our tissues until we're way out here in the range. And it's important to feel something that is a human. We have to know we're in a body. Yeah, I really think that drives a lot of this excessive end range exploration that for some is um, is injurious. You know, it's not contributing to them feeling better, but it's contributing to them feeling. And that is something that's important. Yeah. And it's about that sense of containment. We have to know where the edge is before we know we're contained. And so many bendy people feel disintegrated anyway, sort of untethered. So landing in the body one way or another is grounding and containing for them. So what I offer people is there is a way to feel contained and embodied to, to know you're in a body without going way out there. Right. It, it takes a different way of perceiving more subtle sensations. It takes a lot of practice at tuning in to stuff we've always missed in the mid ranges, either because we were moving too fast 
or we just didn't have our attention tuned up enough to notice that something was happening. We didn't notice it. We only noticed it when it hit us over the head at end range. So we Mm -hmm. have to tune up our sensory system to be able to pick up on more subtle stuff. And this is one of the reasons I love self-massage as opposed to stretching for the sensory fix. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just lay into it. And a lot of bendy people are sensory junkies. They need to feel a lot and it's helpful for them to feel a lot. I'm one of them. I lay into those therapy balls probably every day. Yeah. It feels so good in part because I like massage, but in part because it locates me in my body. A hundred percent. So we just did, I I recently did an interview with Jill Miller and we just did her book in book club, which is why your book is so perfect as like a, a, a compliment. And I was saying in our last meeting, I'm so impressed that Jill, you know, discovered and developed this whole work with the balls because she talks about her struggles with anxiety and her struggles throughout her life with feeling where her body was in space. And I almost feel like that's why it works so well for her and so many of us, because it gives us that proprioceptive feedback that we so, our joints need so much. Yes, exactly. I know her work has truly changed my life. If there's one thing that has changed my life as far as managing my own myofascial pain, it is the yoga tune-up balls. I mean, I have them everywhere. They're in yeah. my car. They're in every room of my house. They're just everywhere. And I use them with almost 100% of my uh, patients too, clinically. Um, so it's really powerful stuff. And you're right. You know, it's not just about wrestling with the tissues. It's about locating yourself in your body and feeling like, okay, I'm here. Yeah. I know where I end and the rest of the world begins. And, um, and that's a critical sense to cultivate. Yeah. I'm really grateful for that too. And that if we have another tool to locate ourselves, we don't need to fling ourselves around at the end range in order to find that we've got other ways to do that, that are less injurious. Right, right, right. So what are the other ways in Austin? I mean, you you have a whole map in the book and we're not going to be able to touch on everything, but you talk a lot about, you know, coming away from the end ranges and coming into the mid ranges. So what are some ways you recommend people start to even understand that feeling in their body? It's a hard thing to start doing, but if you can imagine that your normal range is a hundred percent, just practice backing up to say 70 or 80% all the time in every posture, just as like an experiment, you know, you may not feel anything, but you have to put down that need for feeling stuff because we're going to go do the balls instead. Maybe, you know, we're going to get our sensory fix, but for the movement, let's start containing the movement away from end ranges, maybe 70, 80% practice what that feels like. It's not easy to do. You might need some external feedback to help you know where you are because that end range is also like, okay, maybe we only know 100%, but at least we know when we're there. Yeah, We don't know any of these other places in the range. So if I ask you to stop at 70%, like what the heck does that mean? I don't know what that feels like. I have no idea where I am unless I'm at end range, but that's a good practice. So it's proprioceptive accuracy practice. It's totally beneficial. We could have the whole class do that, whether they're bendy or not. And we're still cultivating this incredible attention and um, proprioceptive accuracy, basically. So that's where I would start. We also know that we are going to develop better motor control, cultivating our ability to control movement. That's always going to be easier to cultivate at mid-range. Start there. 
So it may be that longer term over time, after we get really good control over a movement at mid-range, we can start spreading it out a little bit, but not at the expense of that motor control. Yeah, I so the first time I understood that I was sort of sitting in my joints was when I was in side angle pose, so Parsvakonasana, and I had a teacher come up to me and say, you see your thigh, you're just, your, your hip joint, like you're just sitting in the pose. And I, I had, no one had ever told me this and I didn't know what she was talking about. And she said it a few times and kind of pointed and I still didn't understand what she was talking about. And then I think I instinctively just like backed out of it a little bit. And what that forced me to do was to contract my muscles, to use my muscles more to hold myself. And you talk about, I feel like you, you talked about it maybe in pigeon was that idea of kind of backing out and then isometrically contracting to hold yourself more with your, your muscles. Is that part of like work? Does that, is that sort of part and parcel of working in the mid range? Yes. Yes. So that's a great example of a static posture where we could go to the, where we normally go and just back out a little bit. And by doing so, we have to cultivate all this muscular action. And now we're there in an active form of the stretch rather than a passive form of the stretch. And we're activating these muscles that are, it's useful to, you know, learn how to contract them and use them to control movement. So that's a great way of doing that in a, in a, static posture that you're going to hold for a while in a more dynamic way of doing asana where you're moving in and out of postures or moving from one to the next, then just practicing moving less far Mm. in all the, in every direction, you just move less far here. Then you move less far there, move less far there. And you're just doing smaller movements. Now we're not going to be able to do smaller movements without slowing down. So the pace is huge. You know, a, a lot of people, and I used to do this too, really fast paced asana, you know, very vigorous fitness oriented asana. And this is in the time when I was really using asana for fitness. I don't use it that way anymore. And that's part of the big change for me. Mm-hmm. It often needs to happen for people to be able and willing to approach their practice differently. Mm-hmm. If they're caught up in getting this vigorous workout, they're less willing to change how they approach asana. So anyway, but slowing down is a really big thing. We have to really move slowly, control the movement, pay attention, stop sooner, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I. So it's interesting. I use asana now to maintain certain ranges of strength. I mean, I do strength training as well, but it does help me. Um, well, I'm also stiffer now because I'm an older woman. So like I it helps me in lots of different ways that it didn't, I didn't used to need, but it's interesting to hear you. I'm kind of finally putting together for myself when I'm in a vinyasa class, I still do vinyasa yoga, I, but I do not do like the other day we were doing figure four standing and then twisting. And I just said, no, that's not good for my body. Um, and I just did something else, but I also never go from, well, rarely go from chaturanga to up dog in a vinyasa class because it's too fast and I dump into my lower back and I leave with back pain or sacral pain, but I can do it when I do, do it at home. Like if, cause I'm moving at my own pace and I'm using my muscles more than just that dump right into my back. So that, that actually helps me that puts something together for me. And we might, you know, those of you listening out there might notice something like that in yourself that like if you move slower between one movement and another, you're not going to experience the pain after because you rarely experience the pain during, right? In a bendy body. Exactly. <laughs> you have we to pay have attention. To 
So that so we have to study it later that day. We have to study it the next day and the next day and the next day to really learn, okay, I need to change that for next time. You won't get that information in the moment necessarily. And no. you're exactly right. Sometimes it's not about don't do X, Y, or Z posture. It's more about do it differently. Mm-hmm. Do it differently. Do it more slowly with more attention, with less range of motion, right? With a different approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I don't, now that I learned... Once I learned about my side angle pose, that pose is a great strengthening pose for me. I make sure I'm really in my back leg. I make sure I'm not sinking too far into my front hip. I'm not just sitting there, like laying myself over my body. I'm just, I'm actually really using my, my muscles to hold me. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to land on our, our huge, um, question I feel like you might've devoted a whole chapter to this question. And I, I think so many people are just out there thinking like, I need to know this. Like, is it good for bendy people to stretch if they're already quote unquote, so bendy? And is it okay for people to do passive stretching? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a big question. Mm-hmm. And it really just depends on so many things. Always, always, it depends on who is practicing and what are the features of this individual who has a unique experience in their body. We always have to go there, but to paint broader brushstrokes, uh, we'll, I'll give it a try. I would say that stretching is not bad for bendy people, but de- some versions of stretching, some forms of stretching are going to be more beneficial than others. Or let's put it this way, some modes of stretching are going to be present less risk of ill effects. Okay. I don't think people are going to wreck themselves stretching. I don't think that. I do think that a lot of people who do a lot of, especially passive end range, prolonged stretching end up tweaky. They just have more pain later. Mm -hmm. Are they disabled by it? No, not necessarily, but it's not serving them. It contributes to their pain. Um, So that's going to be the type of stretching that is most problematic, hanging out at end range, dumping into it, like you say, and staying there for a long time. We're going to get that tissue creep that we get with long holds, that connective tissue creep and bendy people's connective tissue is going to creep more easily. And it's going to take longer to recoil back to its resting state in that place of tissue creep bendy people are going to be more impacted by the loss of motor control that accompanies that. That's just in the short term. They're going to be less stable. They don't have a lot of passive stability anyway. And then when you make all that passive, uh, those passive structures creeped out, they, you know, they even are less supported. So there is a problematic uh, in a couple of ways. Now, a, a better, well, I'll also say at end range, that's where we're more likely to dislocate if we are going to. Now, when we think about the range of potential kind of quote injuries that a bendy person might sustain in asana, the biggest one is dislocation of joints, especially the shoulder or the patella. Those are the two things that are going to dislocate in yoga usually. And we're not going to dislocate usually unless we're at end range. If we're thinking about the shoulder, if it's an anterior dislocation, which is usual, we're going to be way back in extension, um, kind of abduction, arm out to the side, reaching back, especially with external rotation, like in the side plank, or when we're in the side plank and we turn it over. I've definitely worked with people who dislocate right there. And 
it, it's just less likely to happen if we're not at end range. That's protective from a joint integrity standpoint. So when we going back to stretching, we have active stretching or dynamic. We've dynamic and active. We've got passive and static, and we've got any combination of those. So we talked about the pigeon pose that we stay in for a while. That's a static pose. We could be there passively, just dumping into it, just collapsing, or we could be there actively where we back out just an inch and we contract the muscles around our joints to hold us there actively. That's very different. This is a very different form of stretching. And actually, when we add a little active contraction to our muscles, suddenly all of our mechanoreceptors are stimulated. Now they're under tension. So we're adding tension to the system in active versions of stretching, which is brilliant because you can think about the bendy body as one that's lacking adequate tension. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, tension helps us know where we are getting our tissues under tension. We don't have enough of that in the body, but adding a little active muscle contraction, even in a stretch helps us get there. My favorite version of stretching is dynamic where you move in and out of the stretch, just back and forth, back and forth, slowly and steadily. That's really great for blood flow to our muscle tissues. Mm -hmm. No, it's not what a lot of people think of when they think stretching, but it's absolutely a version of stretching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot of different ways to think about stretching and what are you getting out of it? And if it's just a sensory fix, like we just need that hit of big sensory input, let's get it in a different way instead. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned that you don't do your yoga practice for quote unquote fitness anymore. So I'd love to know what your physical practices look like these days to keep you feeling well and feeling integrated? Yeah. So um, as far as physical practices, like for fitness, oh, it's weight training, mm -hmm. it's resistance training, and it's what I universally recommend for bendy people, you know, and I can relate to not really being on the top of a lot of people's lists of things they want to do, but it has absolutely changed my life. And I recently started teaching a strength training class called Bendy and Badass. Oh, nice. <laughs> Specifically for basically all the people I've been working with, uh, with hypermobility syndromes. And it's going great, you know, and if people can be, a lot of people need guidance for the strength training. The, the tricky part about a lot of Bendy people is they don't respond kind of typically or normally to exercise. Right. We get fatigued more quickly, right? And they get big time muscle soreness and fatigue sometimes for days after a workout mm -hmm. and it doesn't make sense. And it, it won't until you understand the bendy body and its unique features. And it just has to have a different approach. Cause mm -hmm. I've talked to so many people who are like, yeah, I've tried that. Even sometimes they go to PT, you know, and they're, they have more pain afterwards. They just don't respond normally. So mm -hmm. they have to start really low and move really slowly. So mm -hmm. low and slow with a lot of focus on recovery and a lot of self-study after the fact to learn where do we need to be? So Less is more is the motto in our Bindi and Badass class. We are progressing the loads in the exercises really, really slowly. So if you do say 10 pounds today, spend the next few days studying your response to that. Then we'll bump it up to 12 maybe, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe we stay here, but we're going to progress loading really slowly and we're going to do fewer reps. A lot of people are really attached to doing 10 or 20 reps of an exercise. We usually do five, five or six. 
Mm-hmm. I'd much rather load more heavily for fewer reps and then spend a long time in recovery in between every single set. We're mm-hmm. rolling. We're on the floor. We're not standing up, walking around recovering. We're on the floor getting on balls or foam rollers and resting until we're well rested. How long? Until we're well rested. Completely so helpful. That is so helpful because I, you know, personally have this propensity to like, oh, I need to quote unquote fix it. So I need to be stronger. I should be, I should be stronger. I should be stronger. I always have told myself that, you know, forever because I have noticed in my body that I really struggle to maintain strength, but to take the approach, to take a kinder, more compassionate approach in my strength training, just like I do in now in my yoga Makes sense. I know. I just, it's funny that I never put that together. You know, and it is so hard for so many people. And it was for me too. It's why a couple of years ago, I had to start working with a personal trainer who mm-hmm. could progress me more slowly because mm-hmm. myself, like so many, we'd get to the gym and I could do a lot there in the session, but I was laid out for five days afterwards and I couldn't figure it out. And it's the recovery piece and it's the pacing. And that's what I tell my students in this class. It's not about what you can do here today. It's the question is always, what can you do today and recover from tomorrow so that this is sustainable? Because the mm-hmm. whole point is we want sustain, you know, sustainability. We want progression over time. Mm-hmm. And if all we're doing is a boom and bust cycle, so we're not getting anywhere. We're just constantly getting setbacks and discouraged from it. So we have to be willing to do less today so that we can do it again in a few days and do it again and again, and eventually make excellent progress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So you've got your strength training and then what does your yoga practice look like? It mostly looks like me rolling around on the floor (laughs) (laughs) and relaxing and rolling on balls. And um, I do love stretching. And what's really cool is now that I have been doing strength training for a good many years now, my relationship and experience of stretching is so different. I feel so much more, so much sooner in stretches, and I just savor it. I absolutely love it. I love rolling around on the floor on my back usually and um, you know, doing some leg stretches and some twists. And I have just a handful of kind of yoga asana type movements that I just love and they feel good every time. And it doesn't ever need to be more fancy than that. I pretty much do the same things all the time. And, uh, and it makes me feel better. It's just down regulating. That's kind of the, the role that asana plays for me at this point is just that kind of relaxation, mm-hmm. coming home, getting centered, checking in with myself, that type of thing. And I love it. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And, one of the things I'll mention, because so many bendy people struggle with dizziness and POTS, they often have like tachycardia, heart rate issues, blood pressure issues. That's one of the reasons we spend a lot of time down on the ground in the exercise class and also in a asana class that I, you know, that I do for myself, but also that I would do for other bendy people. We'd spend a lot of time on the floor because being upright is really taxing for the system and it's not recovering, you know, it doesn't feel like recovery if we're having to stand up. So I do have POTS. It's pretty well managed at this point, but sometimes I have a POTSy day and I'm not going to be upright, you Mm -hmm. know, doing anything. I'll do, I'll do exercise. We can do floor presses. We can do all kinds of 
you know, resistance training on the floor too, but that's a, you know, keep in mind positioning for this population, whether it's asana or otherwise and meditation, mm-hmm. you know, expecting a bendy person to sit upright for any length of time, it is excruciating. Huh. And it really wasn't until I learned about pots and about the bendy body that it made my experience of meditation made more sense that it's just so taxing to oh, be upright. Yeah. yeah. It must have been so taxing for you to be a kid at school all day. Was it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> it really was. I was like, I mean, I was, I passed out a couple times in elementary school. You know, I was oh constantly God. just hungry and just generally, I mean, I had a fine childhood, you know, all my needs were met, et cetera. But most of my life has been characterized by just sort of low level feeling unwell, just sort of like, I don't feel well, don't feel great. Mm -hmm. And I've always been sort of more tired um, than my peers, you know, like just, and it never made sense. Why? Because I'm like the healthiest person I know. And that's often the case with the bin. They work hard to, you know, put the right stuff in their bodies and sleep the right amount, all this stuff. And yet still they can't quite, seem like they're at the level of their peers. Do you feel like with your self-management tools and your self-knowledge now and whatever team of providers you have, you know, wellness providers, doctors, um, that do you do physically feel better in your life than you did like before you were diagnosed? I think I do. I know I do. But I think the reason is that I don't expect unreasonable things for myself anymore. I just don't. Mm-hmm. And it's not a thing. It's mm-hmm. like, I've already been through sort of the grief about that. And that's a normal process for people. And not to say that I don't ever feel that anymore. Sometimes I, I wish I could do more than I than I can, which mm-hmm. I had more capacity. But I also just know that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I just don't ask of myself more than I can do. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that goes so much better and it saves my energy for the things that matter the most to me that are non-negotiable, like being a mom, you know, and showing up as well as I can for that, for these years that I have, you know, before my kids are grown, that type of thing. And I've worked really hard to just design and I'm always working hard to design a life that is sustainable for me, that is, you know, enjoyable and I've had to learn to make accommodations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The, I, this is just so important to hear you talk about this. And and it just, um, one thing that you talk about in the book, well, I'll just say that before I learned about hypermobility syndromes just a few years ago, I just felt like constantly, like I was a very high maintenance person, right? Like I was always anxious when other people weren't, I was more tired when other people weren't, I had more headaches. I was more, had more stomach aches. I had, you know, fill in the blank. I felt, I put it in this uh, bucket of high maintenance because I think that's often how the world would respond to me. Like that's how friends responded to me, not Jason. He's, we're so similar. (laughs) We're both like hothouse flowers, but when there's a lack of understanding of what's going on in your body, it can be, you can get a lot of feedback that it's all in your head and that's really challenging. And so you're not only fighting against your body, you're fighting against the expectations of the world around you. And 
you mentioned accommodations. And one of the other things that um, you brought up in the book, and I'm so glad that you did, is that there is a correlation between neurodiversity and hypermobility. And you cited the work of Jessica Eccles, who is a researcher that I found a few years ago. I don't know how I found her on YouTube, who I'm just fascinated by her work. She's in the UK. I tried to get her on the podcast. I think she's a little too busy for me because she's researching and I understand that. But I encourage anyone who might be neurodiverse and experience anxiety and experience hypermobility to go research Jessica's videos as well, because they're so, so helpful. And just like you think about accommodating yourself for neurodiversity, you can do the same. It's all tied together. Those same accommodations that you do and that you ask your loved ones or your workplace to do they're valid and you can learn more about them for hypermobility as well. So I'm just so, so glad that you're out there doing this work and and advocating in this way and educating people. Thank you. There are so many of us out here and, you know, knowing how life-changing it's been for me to finally understand what I do now about my body, you know, there's superpowers too. It's like, it's not just a bunch of like, whoa, awful stuff. There's a level of of profound sensitivity in this person that is an absolute superpower, but you have to learn about it and to manage it. Like you said, make accommodations and and appreciate the gifts of it. But it's going to require some different things than some of your peers. Mm -hmm. And that's just how it is. But once you kind of get that, it's like there's so much freedom in it. Totally. And you're so right. I can't emphasize strongly enough the importance of surrounding yourself with people who they don't have to have the same experience, but they have to be able to validate yours and believe you, you know, and like support your thriving. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have, because you're not likely to find that in your medical team, although you can hopefully hobble one together over time that, that supports that, but your main people absolutely have to. It's, you know, and if you don't have that, you know, I've been there and it's the worst kind of loneliness. It is. It is. And you're right. It's, it's, it's invisible to other people. So they have to trust you. (laughs) They have to. Yeah. Yeah. There's got to be that, that relationship, that trusting relationship. And now that there is more information out there, at least on the internet, um, you know, you can point your loved ones to these resources too, which is helpful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Libby, you're based in Asheville, North Carolina. Are there places, obviously you've got some internet homes. Are you, do you offer any courses or videos online that people can access? Let me think. I'm actually, obviously we've got your book. So we need for people to go out and get your book. Yes. And there are a lot of other things related to the book. They're kind of in the works or haven't popped out yet, but there'll be an online course and they're for, for yoga teachers. And there is going to be an online community for hypermobile people awesome. that I'm launching this fall in connection with the podcast that I'm launching. So it's going to be called the Hypermobility Hub, and it is going to be an online format for live classes, weekly classes, and educational materials and just lifestyle you know, information to help people just live their best bendy life. And so that's a big project I'm working on in collaboration with a couple other people to really try to serve the needs of bendy people out there. So that's all happening. It's all in the works. On the other side of things, I, I do teach anatomy to yoga teachers 
And some of that involves hypermobility stuff. But but I, I do live in a couple of places online and uh, and yeah, more to come. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'll put all of the links to your, your online homes on the show notes page. And thanks so much for being here today and talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I will put show notes with all of the links and things that I mentioned in the podcast on the show notes page, which you can access at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 295. Libby and I had a brief conversation after the podcast, and she said a phrase that was so, so valuable to me, and one that I have thought for a very long time in my own life, but I didn't have this one phrase to, uh, I didn't have the language to describe it. And she said, what can be frustrating is that hypermobility syndromes can have an effect on mental health, and it's physiological. And she said, often... The physiological gets psychologized by healthcare practitioners or by people around you, right? So if you are a person who has anxiety, lifelong anxiety, like as long as you can remember, and it just feels like it's kind of in your system, if you have autism or ADHD or Tourette's syndrome, I highly recommend that you watch the videos by Jessica Eccles on YouTube, and I will put those links on the show notes page, as well as links to all of Libby's work. So you can check out the show notes page at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 295. And I can't wait to hear what you think of this episode. And, you know, I hope you share it far and wide because I think it's really important. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. Enjoy your practice.